0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifacts. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And today we're taking a break from the ranking because the Council of Nicaea has happened, and we cannot let one of the most monumental events in the whole history of the Christian church just go by without looking at it in more detail.
1: Yeah, that would be a disservice.
0: Not only would it be a disservice, we literally could not continue with this podcast, because everything that is going to happen to the Popes for the next long time (laughs) comes back to this moment in some way, shape, or form. So this episode is going to be entirely dedicated to the Council, we're going to talk about the main players who made it happen, who attended, what they set out to do, the outcomes, the legacy of this massive, massive historical moment. It's going to be a long and detailed one. But that being said, this is just going to be an overview. We do not have 10 episodes to dedicate to this. We already have five years of popes to cover, so... Um, we're, we're not gonna dig into, like, super, super dry theological discussion. We're gonna contextualize, and
1: I feel like there's another podcast that probably has done that already.
0: When we started talking about doing an episode on this, someone's like, you're only doing one episode on it? And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> I don't want to look at all of those nidly bits any more than anyone else does, so. We don't need
1: to go cross-eyed about niddly
0: bits. Yeah, I mean, there there's going to be a lot, a lot to talk about. Let's start off with the setting, shall we? Nicaea. <laughs> Nicaea, yes. Briefly, we have to remind ourselves of the setting and context, which is by 325. The Empire is literally sitting on the precipice of the Christianization, so... We have Emperor Constantine has won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge after his conversion moment um, to become the sole Augustus of the West, and by the time of the council, he will be the sole ruler of the whole Roman Empire. He is at the pinnacle of his rising star. We also have the Edict of Milan in 313, which started empire-wide toleration, the church being re-legitimized. This begins to benefit the church hugely with a positive association with the emperor, like we looked at last week. 29 pages of gifts. Mm -hmm. So many gifts. Yeah, so they are getting new churches. They are getting wealth. They are getting influence at the highest point that it's probably ever been in the empire. Like, the church is getting fat and sassy. But, as we always have, when things go well for the church and the empire and they stop getting killed, they start to fight amongst themselves, and we end up with fractures that we cannot ignore. And these are the questions that have been pushed down and remained kind of unanswered throughout that whole persecution period because they didn't have time to deal with theological matters, but they have now burbled to the surface, and they are demanding an explanation because otherwise the church is going to slide sideways into schism and heresy, and we really, really don't need any more of that. So what are the issues that we're going to be looking at here? Well, we got the Trinity. Yep. Is baptism still on the board? Baptism's a little bit on the board. Hmm. What is the forever problem? The lapse at Easter. It's definitely Easter. Easter is always a problem. It's been quiet for a while, but uh, the debate is back, and now it has new additional problems. It's not going to be the main issue, obviously. The church, you know, we can't actually deal with this council without the main issue, which is, of course, what's going on in the Church of Alexandria, the Arian controversy on the Trinity. So you got them all. Uh, we covered this a little bit last week in Pope Sylvester's episode, but if you're tuning in to us for the first time and you decided that this is the first episode you should listen to, um, go back, listen to the other ones. Don't start here, this is not normal. But if it's been a while since you've listened, or, you know, you didn't quite get all that you needed out of what we said in Sylvester's episode, here we go. So, Arian controversy. In Alexandria, we have a priest called Arius, and Arius is very focused on the theology of the Godhead, you know, the natures of God and Christ, and specifically what it meant for Christ to be God's son.
1: Yeah, and there was a whole, like, because he was born thing.
0: Yeah, uh, because God begat Christ, then Christ was a created being, and therefore there was a time before Christ, and therefore only God the Father was truly infinite and eternal, with the utmost and supreme divinity and Christ having been created through the will of the Father is basically saying that he's inferior and not eternal and potentially not entirely divine. So Arius' argument, as we have from him, he says, Were he in the truest sense a son, he must have come after the Father. Therefore it follows that there was a time when the Son was not, and hence he was a finite being. Them's fighting words. They are. (laughs) Yeah, so he's arguing that instead of being a direct and equal manifestation of the Godhead... That he was more like everybody else. Kind of. He says that Jesus was God's first and most perfect of God's creations. So what that says, though, is he's not entirely perfect because he had free will, and, you know, he was a creation. And he turns to the scriptures to bolster his argument, citing passages where Christ speaks and says things like, the Father is greater than I, and references to the Son of being the firstborn of all creation. So he's not entirely pulling this out of the air. This isn't a shower thought or a 5 a.m. thought, like we said before. He has some basis in Scripture. This isn't all out of nothing. But, uh, you know, clearly, having an opinion that diminishes the divinity of Christ is not going to be received particularly well by the Church, and the bishop in Alexandria, Alexander, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a thing. And we'll be dealing with him for a while, so.
1: Yeah, you said, like, forever.
0: Oh, no, that's Athanasius. That's his right-hand man. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but he's coming. He's basically the protege of Alexander. So yeah, they're, they're tied together. Your memory is working. It's going. <laughs> so Alexander, who's actually the bishop, he condemns Arius for his ideas along with his vehement protégé, Athanasius. (laughs) There it is. You know, Athanasius takes this argument really, really to heart. There is no one more zealous in this argument than Athanasius. Alexander, of course, maintains the traditional church view that the son was absolutely divine in absolute equality with the father, and in order to be the truest son to the father, he must be of the same godhead, the same divinity, the same eternality without beginning. And this is the view called the Homusian side and we'll discuss why that is later, but sounds like a people word. It is a people word. Homusian. It's and and it's like there's two o's in the middle followed by a u, so it's one of those fantastic words you look at and you go, "Huh?" <laughs> so <laughs> and the other one is like Homusians, so they're very close. And mean the complete opposite thing. We're going to use different words, but we you need to just keep in mind, homoos. <laughs> Thanks, Greek. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh Alexander comes against Arius' ideas of Christ being created by saying, God begat Christ rather than made him. Therefore, he was made from God rather than by God. And therefore, they were of the same nature and had always existed together. And he, too, went to the scripture for his basis, citing where Christ says, I and the Father are one. And, of course, Hippolytus' favorite, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, the Word is Christ.
1: The Word is the Word.
0: The Word is the Word. It's not bird this time.
1: No, it's just the Word.
0: And the Word is with God, and the Word is God. So, Alexander expels Arius from the church in Alexandria and declares his teachings to be heresy. And this is the short version, because during this time, before it comes all the way to the Council of Nicaea, Alexander has a synod called in Mariotis in 320, and then a council within Egypt to deal with these ideas kind of in-house. And both times that he tries to do this, Arius is actually managing to win some people over to his side with his arguments. Even though he may not be convincing enough people to overrule the bishop, his ideas are still spreading and propagating in the minds of the clergy, and not everyone is seeing his ideas as immediate heresy the way Alexander and Athanasius are. I mean,
1: flat earthers also
0: convince people. Exactly, yeah, I mean, but, you know, he, so he's convincing actual bishops. He even manages to gain the support of an important influential theologian like Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is not that Eusebius, but will be the priest who will baptize the emperor. So still an important Eusebius. So many Eusebii. So many Eusebii. I posted our episode today on Pope Eusebius, number 33, and I had tweets like, that's not that Eusebius. Good, good. I'm glad you know that. So So yeah, it gets to the point where Arius and his followers are getting violent, and the Alexandrian church is at risk of a formal schism. And of course, ideas are never easily contained, especially when you keep holding councils and synods about them. So before long, Arius's teachings are being spread beyond Egypt, and soon the whole church across the whole empire is buzzing with debate about the natures of Christ. So... This could be not just an Alexandrian schism, this could be a full church schism on which wings the balance of Christian souls type thing. Like, it is, it is getting to that level, so. So inevitably, this gets the intention of Emperor Constantine. You know, he'd just thrown his weight into this religion. He wants to solidify the empire with it. The absolute last thing this man wants to see is some kind of massive divide. Schism. Yeah, not even just schism, but like empire-wide schism. This is a man who just got the empire back together. It was in like four parts, and he had to fight and defeat people to get it back together. He does not have time for this.
1: No. And I mean, most of the other emperors didn't have time for it either, but they were much less gentle about it. Well,
0: and not only that, they hadn't just backed that horse. You know, they they didn't just put all their money down on that horse to have it go lame in the first race. Like, he's, he's put his whole
1: fortune, his whole empire... 29 gifts... 29 pages of gifts. Like You're right. 29 pages of gifts.
0: There were estates. There were lands. There were churches. This is like, I if I could calculate all the wealth, it would hurt all of our souls. I think so. Sometimes the church needs a sugar daddy. I think this is the best sugar daddy they ever had. I mean, there are going to be some good ones, but man, he sets a precedent that it will be hard to beat. But now he's mad, he's seeing this divide, and he's like, I can't deal with this. So he writes a letter to Athanasius and Arius. Maybe he didn't want to call out Bishop Alexander directly or something, and he basically tells them to get their f together and stop fighting. Immediately, now figure it out, full stop. And this letter was given to and delivered by Hoseus of Cordoba, who we're gonna come back to in a little bit. Mentioned him last week as well. Alexander writes back To the emperor because obviously he gets that he's supposed to be like bcc'd in this letter and he states that this matter could be settled once and for all if a proper council was called and he asks the emperor to hold one the emperor's like fine arius also wrote to the empire as well and he basically whined that alexander was being a big meanie face it's not a very flattering letter, so... Oh, I bet not. <laughs> so Constantine agrees with Alexander to hold a council and tells Arius that if he has such grievances that he can bring them forward there, and then he calls the biggest council that the church has ever had. So he's not messing around. He wants it done. This is the first ecumenical council in the history of the church, so it's not going to be small. No. No. So the word ecumenical in itself means worldwide. And when used in relation with the church, it's going to come to mean like the big councils where theology is discussed. And those who are able to attend will debate and vote and will come from All over Christendom because the decisions made in the ecumenical councils are meant for a uniform application across the whole of the religion.
1: Yeah. So you want to at least either be present or have your say.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of councils that have been somewhat insular in the decisions that they're making because they're dealing with local heretics or local bishops to depose or, or however they want to deal with them. But this one is like, this is going to affect everybody. So you want to be there. And it was to be head in the Easter tide, which is May of 325, in the city of Nicaea in Bithynia, which is now Iznik in Turkey. And he chose this because it is the most easily accessible place for most of the bishops to actually be able to travel to. It's right off a highway? Yeah, it's, it's reasonably close to Asia Minor, Armenia, Syria, Egypt, Greece, Italy, Thrace, Gaul, etc., etc., etc. This is a place that has been chosen so people can actually make it there. So this mandate could and would be quite heavily attended. It's going to run for two months, so even if you don't get there right away, you will be there. The major Aryan debates are going to go until about the end of June, and then minor stuff is going to continue to go on until August. So, pretty big deal. And Constantine invited pretty much every bishop that existed within the entire Roman Empire, which amounted to be about eighteen hundred in total.
1: Oh. Well, we say see we've grown.
0: Yeah, that's not, that's not how many will attend, but this gives us an idea of how many bishops exist in the Empire, which is pretty good. We have about a thousand in the east and about eight hundred in the west. The church is definitely getting up there substantially. These these are the big guys, the heads of each city, so there's eighteen hundred of them. And of that Between 250 and 318 would attend. That's a very specific yet ranged number. It's because we have different accountings from all the different church historians who actually went. We have Eusebius. That Eusebius. He counted 250 people. Athanasius counted 318. Eustatius of Antioch counted 270.
1: Oh, like they're literally counting? Counting things that are moving, I'm pretty sure we learned not to ever do that. Like, that's a first grade skill.
0: Yeah, it's not a good idea. And I mean, there are lists that have names of people that can go up to 318, so that's kind of- But you said,
1: I don't know, I think it was like Santa's episode we did, that sometimes the lists were very wrong.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, there's definitely a re- there's definitely some theories that- onto why that 318 might not be accurate. There might have been way more people. And it's also this situation where each bishop who was allowed to attend was allowed to bring two priests and three deacons to accompany them. So, like, there's going to be some priests who take full advantage of this, and then we might end up with some priests or some deacons who end up with their names on lists, you know, because in total, even if you have this 318 bishops, the total amount of people actually there at that time was about 2,000. With all those extra support people. So that's going to get really confusing to try and count. You would miscount somebody as a bishop. Oh, wait, they're a deacon, you know, or miss a bishop because he's standing behind a tall deacon while you're taking your count. All of those
1: tall, lanky men ruining
0: the count for everybody. I mean, you nor I would be able to take a count in a sea of people ever. No. We are so short. Constantine arranged for the bishops to travel to the council, like, so he's paying for them to get there, and he's covering their lodging at their council. It's free for them to attend, because he wants the highest possible turnout to get here. He wants everybody to be there, he wants everything covered. You do not have an excuse to not come, Pope Sylvester.
1: I'm still confused as to why he didn't come.
0: Even if he was an old man, I think Constantine would have, like, dragged him in a wagon, you know, so... He also fitted out the hall that would be used for the council sessions, and he succeeded because, by many accounts, delegates from the council were sent from every region of the Roman Empire. So he got somebody from everywhere, except Britain, because oceans. Fair enough, right? Like, that that's a pretty good reason.
1: Maybe they sent somebody and
0: they died. It is possible. Some sources say there were Britons there, but most sources agree that, mm, oceans. Oceans. Yeah, I mean, they've had a Roman presence in Britain since Claudius' time, but yeah, it's not, it's not an easy place to get to. So let's talk about some of these main players. Who are the heavy hitters and important people? Obviously, the first is Constantine. I would assume. And Constantine set up the council to run like a Roman Senate and presided over it in part. Oh, he came to it for a bit. He did, but he didn't have a vote. No,
1: I mean, he doesn't understand what's happening.
0: But it's interesting that he didn't demand that he get a vote, which I think is is fascinating. But he also allegedly didn't show up until nearly a month after the council commenced, so he might have only even stayed for five days while the big issue was handled, if we are to believe some sources. And we have a description of the emperor's appearance at the council from Eusebius to read, so... That, Eusebius? We're going to say it every time. He says of Emperor Constantine, And now, all rising at the signal which indicated the emperor's entrance, at last he himself proceeded through the midst of the assembly, like some heavenly messenger of God, clothed in raiment which glittered as if it were rays of light, reflecting the glowing radiance of a purple robe, adorned with the brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. Such was the external appearance of his person, and with regard to his mind it was evident that he was distinguished by piety and godly fear this was indicated by his downcast eyes the blush on his countenance and his gait for the rest of his personal excellencies he surpassed all present in height of stature and beauty of form as well as in majestic dignity of men and invincible strength and vigor All these graces, united to a suavity of manner and a serenity becoming his imperial station, declared the excellence of his mental qualities to be above all praise. As soon as he had advanced to the upper end of the seats, at first he remained standing, and when a low chair of wrought gold had been set before him, he waited until the bishops had beckoned to him, and then sat down, and after him, then the whole assembly did the same. He's covered in gold and shininess and precious stones. They refer to this man as being absolutely beautiful. Blushing? He was blushing. He's modest. He waits for them to invite him to sit down, but they can't sit down till he sits down. So, you know, it's, it's a catch-22 for those poor bishops. And, of course, he's described as being beautiful. And we've seen a bust of Constantine. That is, He is not a pretty man. That is not a thing, so... He's our major, major player, even though he might have only been there for five days.
1: Perhaps he is beautiful because he's
0: not murdering them. He's beautiful. He's so godly. He has such piety and god-fearingness. Oh my goodness. So he's player number one. Player number two is Bishop Hosius of Cordoba. He's the one who carried the Emperor's letter to Alexander and Arius that led to the council. He was the official head of the council. He's the one who presided over the actual sessions, and it's unclear whether he was appointed by the pope or the emperor or both, but he, he is like head honcho. He is the one running this show. All right. Important. He is a very important man. Uh, yeah. He, he'll be around for a while. Also, he is a strict Humusian. So he is all like God and Christ. They are the same. Consubstantial Humusius. Then we have Pope Sylvester's papal legates, Vitus and Vicentius, because maybe Sylvester was too old to travel. Yeah, maybe he was. Maybe. Yeah, you know, I still don't think that's a good excuse. Die on the way to the council. <laughs> yeah, die on the way. You're the pope. They'll elect a new one there. Yes. What a good place for a new pope. So then we have Alexander of Alexandria and his right hand man, Athanasius. And these, of course, The initial Hamusians in the conflict. Then we have Arius, who's there to argue for the Arian viewpoint, obviously. Get punched in the face over it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's a story on our Patreon. Check that one out. So then we have Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is the one who will baptize Constantine later. Not that Eusebius. He's there to support Arius. We have Eustatius, the Bishop of Antioch. And then we have Eusebius of Caesarea. That Eusebius, who's there! <laughs> Which is really sad, because it means we're actually in his lifetime now, and we're gonna kind of... Oh no, then he's gonna run out of
1: things to tell us. Yeah,
0: we're gonna lose him as a source when he actually dies. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna have Jerome and Socrates, Scholasticus, and... um zazamon coming up but eusebius will be gone but for now he's actually in our story and we also have saint nicholas of mira santa claus mm-hmm. he's there
1: chilling <laughs> not chilling that's
0: the exact opposite of what he's doing t- <laughs> <laughs> he's so chill you guys he was both <laughs> too chill and not chill at all but yeah you'll have to come on to patreon to hear about that so Beyond this, other notable mentions go to the 22 bishops, approximately, who were there to support Arius. So, you know, there are actually Arians there who have come to support him. And then there's a lot of commentary about the quote-unquote living confessors who have come to this council, and they all show marks of their persecutions. So these are men who have survived through the most horrible persecution in the Christian history. And, you know, they've got scars and burns and crippled limbs. And there's one bishop from Egypt who's missing his eye. Okay.
1: They've had some things to deal with.
0: Yeah, and they're going to get a lot of respect for that. Like, people are making note of them because they're obviously incredibly tough and brave. So there's that. Now, let's discuss what the actual agenda of the council was and how it all played out. We know who's here. We know why. The first and most obvious is to gain a church consensus on the whole nature of God and Christ thing so that the entirety of Christendom could be on the same page and represent that uniform theology. And that's all wrapped up in resolving the confusion and the disputation going on in Alexandria between Alexander and Athanasius against Arius and bring that whole place back to unity. Alexandria is kind of important. So they need to settle this for uniformity of church doctrine and to get Alexandria to settle down. The other part of the Aryan debate that would have to be accomplished in this was to determine the actual semantics of the language that was going to be used to adequately represent the decision that they came to on the nature, regardless of whatever way they chose to go. They had to be very clear about their language, because, you know, we've seen how important it is when you have implicit differences between words like born and created and made versus something like begotten. And part of the reason that this whole question even started was because created and begotten, most of us would look at that and see it as the same thing, whereas someone like Alexander would not. And then to add on top of all of this, there's the whole tricky element of having this need to accurately translate between all of the languages of the Empire So you couldn't just decide that this is what it was going to be in Greek or in Latin and, you know, Bob's your uncle, because not everybody in the empire speaks that way. So you have to go over the word to make sure that it translates correctly so that when these bishops go home to their native provinces, they're not giving people the wrong idea. So how exactly does this play out? In short, the final decision of the council is a substantially one-sided vote, for the church to become officially anti-Aryan, summarized in a decree called the Nicene Creed. The creed itself was allegedly based off of a Caesarean baptismal creed that our Eusebius, that Eusebius, had suggested as a framework, so he's not just there recording on it, he's giving the format.
1: He's making suggestions, yeah.
0: So yeah, it was either a formula that was suggested by Eusebius, Some historians now think it has more in common with the baptismal creed that came out of Jerusalem, which makes sense because Jerusalem continued to have special honor within the church, but most historical sources from the time say it came from Eusebius. So the Nicene Creed lays out the divinity of Christ as the true son of God who was made from God, not by God. So he was begotten of the same substance and the same essence, therefore co-divine, co-eternal with the Father. And this is described in the creed as light from light, true God from true God. And the word that was chosen to represent this idea at its most clear is that Greek word homousius, or for our sake, uh, consubstantial, which we heard yeah. all the way back in episode 27 with Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria. There's also the Latin translation "unus substantiae also used, and we can cite that all the way back to Tertullian. So. What they're doing is they're trying to pull language that's familiar to the majority of the theologians. Therefore, they have the most clear implications. They also officially chose the word begotten over made to make it very clear that the Son was made from God and not from nothing of one being with the Father. So, yeah. They claim that the Hamusius understanding of the Father and the Son was dictated directly to the Apostles, And clearly, this made the Arian view of Christianity entirely invalid within the constructs of the church, and the Arian arguments of there being a time when Christ was not, and that Christ was any other substance than God, they see this as anathema now. So it's excommunicable to be an Arian after this conference. Well, I mean, you gotta put your foot down somewhere. Oh, and they do. And of all the bishops who attended the council, including that 22 bishops who had come to support Arius, only two bishops and Arius refused to sign their name to the creed. Oh, wow. Bye. Yeah, so Constantine had made it clear anyone who refused to accept the decision of the council would be exiled. So Arius and these two bishops, Theonis of Mamarica and Secundus of Ptolemaeus, which are both in Libya were excommunicated and exiled to Illyria, so double burn, and then triple burn any extant writings from Arius were ordered, collected, and burned. A literal burning. Now, I, I just want to point out, because we may get questions about this, uh you'll notice that in any of this we don't really have a discussion of the nature of the Holy Spirit or the word Trinity so much. These are issues that are going to come up later and cause their own set of problems, so they weren't even really on the radar at this point. The Trinity, we we didn't skip it on purpose. We're, we will come back to it in time. But moving on from the Arian controversy, we have Easter. The church, once and for all, wanted a uniform observance of the Easter rites. I don't think we actually need to go over the Easter debate again, but, you know, for the Western church, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. After Passover, no other day but Sunday. But in the East, they've been celebrating Easter on whatever day of the week is the 3rd day after Passover. So Yeah, more like Christmas. Exactly. So um this has been an issue since Telesphorus, which was episode 10 so long. Yeah. So <laughs> that's not even the issue really. So now we have a whole other element of conflict to add to Easter. <laughs> either way that Easter was being celebrated, either it was every day of the week or or it was Sunday, It was being decided based on what followed Passover, and Passover was being determined as the 14th day of Nisan, which is a lunar month, and why we see it shift in our modern calendars today, why Easter doesn't have a specific day, is because it was based off a lunar calendar. But this determination of Nisan and Passover was being done on the Jewish calendar, So the Catholic religion as a whole was relying on the Jewish calendar to calculate and identify the important dates so that they could then set Easter accordingly. So this is a problem for the church, especially when they start passive-aggressively suggesting that the Jews aren't doing a nice and orderly job keeping up their calendrical calculations. So not only are, ugh, we don't want to have to use your calendar, but you're doing a bad job at your calendar. Don't tell them their calendar's bad. That's rude. So rude. It had been presented that perhaps they should do their own Christian calculations to determine the official position of Easter and not have to rely on those, as they say, lazy and disorganized Jews. Oh, rude. I literally wrote slash sass in my notes. (laughs) That is <laughs> so rude. You know, honestly, I'm sure that the Jewish population was just as happy at the idea that the Christians could kindly piss off and do their own work.
1: Do your own math, then.
0: Yeah, figure it out. So, um, but there was still a large voice within the church that felt that it would be better to carry on with the reliance on the Jewish calendar rather than go independent. And this was mainly a traditionalist view to keep things the way they were. And I can only speculate that if you were a quarter deciman who celebrated on whatever day of the week, you want the system to stay the same and left alone. You don't want to change, yeah. Because if they start changing it, you know it's going to Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. In the end, at this council, for better or for worse, they do decide to do their own independent calculations and their reliance on the Jewish calendars and have a uniform understanding of the Pascal Feast. And with this, some structural guidelines that aren't super important to the discussion come in. Like, Christian Neeson is always going to be calculated for Easter after the equinox. But, you know, some that are important come up as well. Like we said a hundred times, Easter is now henceforth officially and forever a Sunday in canon church law. Are you sure? They even write a churchwide epistle sent directly to the Church of Alexandria in the East, you know, to say... We also send you the good news of the settlement concerning the holy pass, namely, that in answer to your prayers, this question has also been resolved. All of the brethren in the East who have hitherto followed the Jewish practice will henceforth observe the custom of the Romans and of yourselves and of all of us who from ancient times have kept Easter together with you. Easter is settled. Deal with it. Maybe. There is also an issue that was addressed at the Council of Nicaea that often gets overlooked or cast to the side because it's so minor in comparison to the rest. And that's this little schism that had formed in the church led by the bishop of Lycopolis in Egypt called Melidius. Yeah, apparently Egypt is just where all the pot stirrers are in this era of the church. I guess. Carthage, Alexandria, Lycopolis, it's just gonna happen. Melenius is concerned with the Lapsi who had been reabsorbed into the church.
1: Yeah, I thought they were, we were just done.
0: It was fine. Uh We're never going to be done with that. So um, some sources say that this comes from the fact that he'd suffered pretty tremendously himself during the Diocletian persecutions. And of course, that would make you pretty bitter towards anyone who had just recanted. Uh We don't know for sure. Accounts differ pretty heavily, so that that's a theory, but there's not enough fact on that. But we do know that as bishop, it got to the point where Melidius is actually denying people communion and building up a following who agreed with him. Oh no, he's doing one of those. You can't be doing that. And he's pulling a novation, so... Yeah. And so as a result of what he's doing, pulling his novation... He had been deposed by the Bishop of Alexandria, who had come before Alexander, and Melidius in his deposition started to pull other bishops who supported him away from the church, you know, like you do. So the council now wanted to deal with this issue, you know, mend the wounds, restore peace with this small little fragment. They have, you know they have bigger things to worry about. You know, Arianism has heresy in it, this is just you being a little bit holier than thou. Let's let's just put it aside. So the compromise is set at the Council of Nicaea that Melidius would actually be able to keep his bishopric and his position, but they're essentially going to quarantine him a little bit. Um, He's not going to have the ability to ordain clergymen outside of Lycopolis, and any bishop or clergyman that he had ordained, since this minor schism had happened, would have to be reordained by someone who was more legitimate in the church, so... You can keep your spot, but your influence is very limited, basically. Which is a pretty lenient and solid compromise for the church to offer, even though they don't really, they don't really have to do that. They do, but it does no good because the Miletians decide that they are just going to join the Arians in and not deal with the church at all. Oh, okay. Well, we're just going to go with this other schism over here. Damn. Even though Miletius dies pretty much right after the council his followers just decide to remain outside the church with the Aryans. That one is a failure. <laughs> I guess. But it's not anti-pope material. It, no, no, not at all. This is, this is, he's not actually trying to run the church. They're just saying, nah, we're gonna go be heretics now. No thanks, goodbye. The council also, once the bigger issues had been established, was able to debate some of the little organizational things, like structure of the church, standards for the clergy, and Policy on the left side again and again. So out of the Council of Nicaea, we get 20 new church laws, which are called canons, and we're going to go over, um, just a, just a couple of them. So church organization first. They decide that two provincial synods should be held annually to just kind of check in, uh, confirmation of customs that determine jurisdiction of the bishoprics of Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch authority things. There's an affirmation of honorific status for the rites of Jerusalem, so it gets special honor in the church. Uh, they decide that a bishop must be ordained in the presence of at least three provincial bishops and confirmed by a metropolitan bishop, so they're solidifying that process. Bishops and presbyters hold precedence when receiving communion over deacons, so they get to go first. <laughs> Catechumens, who are people studying for their baptism, have a minimum time established for their study, which is kind of a subjective minimum. You know, there there is need of time and a longer trial before baptism. They kind of set up some of those structures. A new restriction is implemented against kneeling on Sundays or during the Pentecost. A restriction? Yeah, yeah, they don't want it. Because at this time in church history, uh standing was the appropriate stance for prayer. And kneeling was only done for prayers and penance. So if you're kneeling, you're in penance and you shouldn't be uh you shouldn't be undergoing penance during the Pentecost. It's supposed to be a time of celebration of life and the passion of and the resurrection of Christ rather than your own penance. So you cannot kneel during that time. And they say that clergymen ordained to a certain church should remain with that church and not leave for other churches. You know, they should stay where they've been ordained. And also that they cannot be deposed by that church and then accepted within another church. They're just trying to keep people where they are. Now on to the heretics section. Heretics. I uh I broke these up into nice little categories rather than just trying to read you twenty boring things. Uh one canon tries to make peace with the novations. Um <laughs> it would allow for the novationists, who, like we said in innovations episode, they're called Cathari here in this text that of the actual canon you know puritans it would allow them to remain as member of the clergy as long as they were able to start communing with the people like the Lapsi i am twice married christians so you know if you've been pitching up a fuss you can come back now um if they had been bishops in the novation order they're allowed to come back and be presbyters or if they had been an archbishop they could go back to being a bishop so they can come back into the church they just get a little demotion.
1: Yeah, they gotta prove themselves. It makes sense to me.
0: And remember how we talked about that whole heretical baptism still valid if it's done in the proper form? Yeah. Well, the 19th canon of the Council of Nicaea says this doesn't apply to baptisms conducted by Paulian heretics. What? Yeah, these are the people who followed Paul of Samosata. You remember him? That Yeah. He got deposed and then refused his deposition. Yeah. More about him in episode 27 and 28. Um, I thought... Like it, yeah, it doesn't count for this one specific case if that seems annoying, wrong, so annoying. then there are a series of decrees that deal with the Lapsi and structuring for penance, you know even though the persecutions had ended a while ago, um Emperor Licinius in the East had still persecuted right up until the edict of Milan in three thirteen If the lapse under Heraclius that had gotten so violent, if they had gotten some relaxation on the penance during their violent riots. It's back now. Like, they are now setting it in stone. No, there's actually penance here. They they talk about what it, they have penance laid out in stages. It says, if they heartily repent, shall pass three years among the hearers. For seven years they shall be prostrators, and for two years they shall communicate with people in prayers, but without oblation. That's so many years. Yeah. So, you have a long time to do penance if you're a lapsi now, um, unless you're dying. Because if you're dying, they'll just give you the Eucharist. And if they had been a catechumen when they lapsed, then their study period would be a minimum of three years to re-establish their commitment to the religion before they could undergo baptism. Now, clerical laws. So the first one is, a cleric may not have a younger woman in his home, for it might bring him under suspicion. Only a mother, sister, or aunt may live with a cleric. So there's that. Okay. Okay. A cleric will not be subject or participate in usury, which is the loaning of money with interest. They cannot be, or
1: they can't get a loan, and then
0: they can't take a loan. Um, especially if that loan is charging interest, because it's the usury problem that's that's the big one. And finally, <laughs> we're going to talk about the first canon of this decree last, because it's uh, definitely the one you're going to be the most interested in. This is the prohibition of self-castration.
1: Yeah, you keep saying that, and, like, I just need to know why there's people out there just, like,
0: willy-nilly chopping their wangs off. Yeah, so, uh, we also had that question from Smother on Twitter, who asked for a full explanation of why this is necessary. Yeah, why is this happening? And, uh, I have looked into this, and uh, we're gonna go on a detour, (laughs) so. Yeah, I went down a whole rabbit hole of self-castration in the early church, and, um. Yeah, this was in fact a widespread enough act that the church felt that it needed to be addressed. So, before we go into why, here is what it actually says. If any one in sickness has been subjected by physicians to a surgical operation or if he has been castrated by barbarians, let him remain among the clergy. But if any one in sound health has been castrated himself, it behooves that such a one, if already enrolled among the clergy, should cease from his ministry and that henceforth no such person should be promoted.
1: Why is there so much castration happening? That they have to have categories.
0: Oh, but it goes on. But as it is evident that this has been said that those who willfully do the thing and presume to castrate themselves, so if any have been made eunuchs by barbarians or by their masters should otherwise be found worthy, such men can be admitted. So we need to separate. If you got castrated by someone else, you're still good. But if you're doing it yourself, there's a problem. Why? Why? Why so much
1: castration?
0: My main source for this section, this rabbit hole of self-castration in the early church was an article called The Practice and Prohibition of Self-Castration in Early Christianity by Daniel F. Kaner, and he did a fantastic job of laying out all the details. So also, the first thing that pops up when you start typing self-castration in a Google window is a kit you can get online, so don't do that. <laughs> uh-uh. Oh, that sounds like an F plus episode. So there's a kit, but that—that's I was still typing in the early church, so I didn't want the kit. So now, self castration is not new in the church. At the point of the Council of Nicaea, this is something we have records going back to the second century for, with Justin Martyr recording the incident of a young man requesting permission to be allowed to do so. Even Origen, the source we've used for many of our early episodes, is thought to maybe have been a self-imposed eunuch. So maybe Origen did that to himself. Why are you like this? And by the 4th century, Basil of Ancyra tells us that, quote, many such eunuchs were growing prominent in the church and had made themselves conspicuous. It's kind of an open secret, really. So the question you keep asking is why. Why? <laughs> why? Why are you doing this? So why are men so willingly castrating themselves, or as one source put it so lovely, taking a sickle to cut his privates off?
1: <laughs> I need to know why. Turns out
0: this is a question with many answers.
1: Oh, there's there's
0: more than one answer. Um, the first answer is biblical. Uh, there is a Bible verse, Matthew nineteen twelve, that says this. There are eunuchs that were so born from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs that were made so by men, and there are eunuchs that have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. If you read more modern translations, you'll get other such readings of this line now. They've changed it a little bit. If you go to the actual Vatican online Catholic Bible, what it says is some are incapable of marriage because they were born so, some are made by others, and some have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We don't mean your dick literally. <laughs> yeah. So they, they've taken this and, and turned it into a renouncing marriage. Don't cut yourself. So Don't cut your dick off. Uh, but you can see how the reading of the first translation gives a pretty distinct impression of what's being suggested, you know.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna be celibate, just chop it off.
0: Yeah, it it's not a big stretch to see how some radical people could have seen this act of castration as a manifest expression of Christian chastity and moral purity, right? Like, by committing this very extreme act would set themselves apart from the fallibility of corruptible thoughts and desires type thing. Ooh, don't bang my laptop. It was also thought to be an action to avoid impropriety in other ways, uh, namely by male ascetics who lived with female ascetics as a way of clearing themselves and women they lived with from any form of suspicion, since it was, you know, it's much more difficult to verify a woman's commitment to chastity at the time. You're not going to get in there and get the Virgo Intactica description. And this was a direct response to so much discussion happening in the church at this time over what exactly the proper code of conduct for asceticism was, and what level of contact between male and female ascetics it was considered proper and good. And because there's a lot of thought into the practical reality that males pose a threat to virgin women's identity, both in physical desire and that their presence made it hard to believe the purity of either party, this is an ongoing discussion. Okay. I am a male ascetic. I have taken a commitment to celibacy, but I live with a woman, and I don't want people to question either her nor me, so I'm just gonna chop my bits off. I guess. But regardless of the reason for it, the church found even more reasons against it. The first and most argued argument made for it was recorded by Basil of Incyra, who saw the act of self-castration... As a declaration of one's own licentiousness. Basically showing a man who has castrated himself as being incapable of self-control over their desire, uh, to keep their carnal thoughts from leading them away from God. That's a leap. Well, I mean, you know, if, if, if you're gonna do something impulsive like cut your bits off, you probably don't have very good self-control. Uh, yeah, that's true. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're a horn dog. He also says that in the case of the male and female ascetics living together, that men who castrated themselves in this way were giving themselves a little bit more license for their desire, which was to live with women, and that equating castration with chastity is a misdirection, which to me indicates a pretty strong understanding on Basil's part that there are a lot of ways to have sex other than, you know. So (laughs) he thinks that this is kind of, you know... Uh, a smoke screen give or take that it allowed them to have sexual relations in other ways but nobody's going to think so because you're a eunuch or in some other cases he also argues that making yourself a eunuch was somehow carte blanche to be indulgent in other ways um and this is what basil witnesses in a christian subset called the Valesians, who were active eunuch makers <laughs>
1: Active eunuch makers. What a
0: terrible thing. And he says of them, once they have been castrated, he then partakes of anything whatsoever. So, you know He wants some chocolate. So he's he's castrated himself to be closer to God and now he doesn't feel the need to um prevent himself from engaging in other vices. So Alcohol and chocolate. Gambling whatever it is, right? It's you know, going to the to the the games at the Coliseum, who knows? It's even said that the forces that bring a man to make himself a eunuch could be the devices of Satan, intending on influencing people to mutilate their body and therefore defiling them and corrupting them away from what God intended. You've been tricked. So that's a thing. It's kind of like, get a piercing. Oh, your body's been mutilated. God doesn't want you anymore. Type thing. So, So whether it was an expression of self-control or an extreme interpretation of scripture or a method of getting something else they wanted, uh, the church saw this as a problem and issued a prohibition. Self-made eunuchs could not enter the clergy. Um, then they excommunicated lay people who castrated themselves for three years. And uh this prohibition won't work, but people will still do this for a long time, and it, it will diminish self-castration at least for a little while, but yeah, this is still something that happens. And the last canon they tried to pass we get from Socrates Scholasticus, who tells us that the... Council also tried to pass a canon that would enforce celibacy of all clergymen, but that was met with distinct opposition, and so failed. To wrap up this episode, we're going to touch on a couple final things to spell some myths, look at the legacy of the council. The first thing is a secular matter. On July 25th, the council was still underway, so they celebrated the emperor's 20th anniversary. Constantine gave a farewell to address at the time, and in so many words, he reminded them that the harmony and peace within the church was the only way forward for Christianity. So, you know, that's a thing. Uh, he, he just kind of ends with like, oh, you're celebrating me fantastic. Remember, if you're not unified, I'm done with you. So now the myth. Uh, it used to be recorded that the Council of Nicaea also determined which books of the Bible were going to be considered canon. There's this Weird myth that they would line up the copies of each book of the Bible on an altar and whichever ones fell off the altar were discarded and not made canon. This was fake. That seems like
1: a dumb way to choose
0: things. Yeah, um, it's very, very fake. Uh, It did not exist at all in the zeitgeist of history until Voltaire, so Voltaire's fault. He likes to say things about religion that aren't true like he's the one that said that the holy roman emperor was neither holy nor roman nor an empire so he likes to throw things out there but uh something else is conspicuously lacking here that we just need to briefly touch on that we did last week in pope sylvester's episode but there is absolutely no talk about the primacy of rome as the head of the church or the legitimizing power of the pope here but the pope ain't there yeah i mean there's arguments one way or another you know there are some people who say, oh, it's implicit that the Pope is in charge because he confirmed the decisions of the council, but he didn't sign anything and he didn't attend. So um that's a, that's a big one, and it's going to come and bite them in the ass during the Reformation a lot. You know, we see the council itself giving pretty equal respect between the Pope's legates and like the Bishop of Antioch and the Bishop of Alexandria, and we have Constantine presiding, so none of this is going to reinforce apostolic succession, and that's really not going to be good for them. If we were trying to summarize the legacy of this council, it would be very, very hard to do. It set the standard for the first seven ecumenical councils of the church. It's the first moment in which theology was debated and discussed and then sent out for universal application. It's the first and certainly not the last time that we see an emperor playing a massive role in the church. It paves the way for Christianity to be the official religion of the empire even though it won't officially happen until the Edict of Thessalonica in 380. We'll get there. We're not that far. We're not far at all. I've actually written those popes already, so. Unfortunately, uh not all legacies are positive or long-lasting. We still have Arians after this council. They will not go away. Even though Arius is excommunicated and expelled from Alexandria, he goes to Nicomedia, where the bishop there, Eusebius, ends up with an extremely influential relationship with the empire. And he is actually going to get Constantine to soften up on the Arian Christians. Eusebius. Yeah. Not that Eusebius. And Constantine's successors, too, are going to have Arian leanings. And that's going to be a big problem for the church in the future. And then we have the Miletians who join the Arians just to cause chaos and... Weirdly, right before his death, Arius actually wins readmission to the church, but he dies before it can take effect, so he kind of sorta gets reconciled with them, but not really. And And finally, last point that we need to make here, is that just because Constantine is gearing to make Christianity the official state religion, this does not in any way mean that all of the pagans are just cool with that and ready to, you know... Oh, no, I'm sure. They're not at all. So we are definitely not out of the woods with this council yet. And we're going to finish this episode with you, and you're going to read the Nicene Creed for us. Again? Again. <laughs> I've spoken for so long. It's true.
1: But, I mean, we already read it last week.
0: Yes, but this is the episode of the Council of Nicaea.
1: It must be Fine. there. It has to be in here. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
0: And with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Bye. (laughs)